That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. Just a quick program note before we start the show. This episode was recorded before our long and unexpected hiatus, so I just want to update something we didn't cover in our interview. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, a hugely gripping documentary series that Patton produced, based on his late wife Michelle McNamara's book about the tracking of California's Golden State Killer, is now available on HBO Max, and I can't recommend this highly enough. Also, his latest Netflix stand-up special, I Love Everything, is available now and, need we say, hilarious. So, let's get started. I'm Mick Garrison from the social distance of Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the vast San Fernando Valley. This is Postmortem. We've spoken before and will speak again of the relationship between comedy and horror. The physical reactions of laughs and screams, the shared experience and visceral roots. The best horror and the best comedy come from a deep abiding truth, something so raw and honest that it can mean breaking boundaries and taboos to get there. The correlation between comedy and tragedy is also nothing new, and it relates equally to horror. Pain is real, pain is relatable, and shared pain can ease the agony. And just taking a sideways step to laughter can ease the shared pain considerably. David Cronenberg's powerful early film, The Brood, came from the agonizing disintegration of a marriage gone wrong. Its killer kids, given birth from membranes outside the mother's body, are monsters from the id, given life by anger, fury, even hatred. It comes from personal pain, and the power of the drama from such an intimate place drives the horror that we feel as if it is our own. There's plenty of horror that is not so personal, some of it great and scary and recreational, but the movies that come from a place of personal pain are the ones that stick in the brain. There's plenty of really funny comedy, too, that doesn't dive deep, but the tie between laughter and tragedy is also tight. I was fortunate enough to see live stand-up shows by Andy Kaufman, Richard Jenny, Robin Williams, and Bill Hicks, all of whom performed with breathtaking openness, well, maybe not Kaufman, and all of them gone tragically early. One of the most painful, emotional, and hilarious stand-up comedy shows I've seen is the Netflix special Annihilation by our guest, Patton Oswalt. It's all about losing his wife, hardly what you'd expect from a comedy special, but see it and cry and laugh a lot. It will do you a world of good. So with no further ado, Pat Oswalt, can we talk? You were brought up a military brat. Um, you, your dad was a career Marine, and so you did some traveling, and you were even named after General Patton, right? 
Yeah, yeah. My dad was a, a Marine colonel, 20-year Marines. Um, I was born in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Portsmouth, actually. And then we moved a little bit in my youth, but then I, I remember this very clearly when we moved to Virginia when I was like five or six. My dad, because he remembered, I think he flashed on when he was growing up, his dad was also a, a he was fighter pilot. And they traveled constantly. Like, I think my dad went to seven different high schools and lived in five different countries and just never really. And he goes, I, I never remembered like having a base, like a, 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 my home. I never had a hometown. And he wanted my brother and I to have the experience of, you know, having a base. So we, he took a job in, in DC, uh, just, I think some kind of thing where he didn't have to he stopped flying, took a desk job so that he could just stay and we could grow up in the same area. So I ended up, so my, even though I wasn't born there, I consider Sterling, Virginia to be my hometown because wherever you go through puberty, that's your hometown. Right, exactly. So you could not have ended up further away from the military than you have. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Did that start early? Were you kind of an anti-establishment kid when you were growing up? I don't know if I was anti-establishment. My parents were very, very normal, kind of uh, dull, but not in a bad way, just yeah. dependable, solid suburban parents. And a lot cozy. of my- Cozy, yeah. It was just very good. They're very cozy. And so because <laughs> I had that kind of uh, dependable base, I guess, I was able to kind of you know pursue the more creative, weird stuff. But I don't really think, I don't know if I did it in a rebellious way. I did it more in a- a curious way. Sometimes curiosity would lead to rebellions because there are people that aren't crazy about curious kids. Um, <laughs> but I remember a lot of my friends had parents who were going through divorces or having affairs or smoking weed and basically were like really embracing the swinging 70s. And um, they kind of rebelled against that by becoming even more traditional kind of hidebound marriage kids white picket fence, that kind of thing, because they didn't have the stability. Because I had, because I knew I had the stability, I was able to go out and be kind of a weirdo. And a right. lot of my friends who you would think had the more creative weirdo parents uh, rebelled by, it's it's not fun to be raised by interesting parents. It looks fun <laughs> from the outside, but I think on the inside, it's kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't have that worry. My parents split up when I was 12 and, uh, you know, Ooh. all of those things. That Where were you growing up? Actually, I was born and raised in Southern California. Uh, oh, no I kidding. Born in L.A. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. In, uh, in Van Nuys and then down in uh, suburban San Diego outside of there. And then I came back here with my band in the 70s. What so. was your band? It was a progressive rock band called Horse Feathers. I'll, I'll send you a CD. We just put out our first album 40-some years after recording all this music. Prog rock band, let me guess. Your first album was 53 minutes long and contained two songs. There you go. There you yeah, go. exactly. It's called Symphony for a Million Mice. What could be more? Oh, wrong? dear God. Now, I know your musical tastes are the exact opposite. Of progressive rock. I, I there's a really interesting book that a guy named Dave Weigel, uh, who writes for Slate, wrote about the whole history of progressive rock. That was really really fascinating when rock just decided to fucking indulge. And I think it was either Emerson Lake and Palmer or the Alan Parsons Project had a a stage show that was so 
cost prohibitive that basically to go on tour ended up costing them money. Whereas most bands, you put out an album and then you make your money touring, their tour, because there was so many props and dry <laughs> ice and all this stuff that it was impossible to make, and so much personnel yes. that it was impossible to make money. And then like Prog Rock had this crazy window where it was just massive and then overnight like the Ramones and punk and hip hop came along and just. Yeah. Even before that disco was really the death knell that. Happened. Oh, and then punk rock and, and rage rock and all of that, you know, prog rock was supposed to be intellectual. And yep. if, if you're lucky, you can combine the intellectual with the emotional and create something accessible and yet artful <laughs> instead of arty. Exactly. But, yeah. But your tastes were more punk and more rebellious in, in music, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, except that, again, I was a I was a suburban veal. You know, I grew up in these very <laughs> comfortable suburbs. So I was always doing the thing that a lot of suburban kids did, which I was discovering things five years after they happened <laughs> and acting like I had discovered them. So right. in uh, 1984, when Repo Man came out, I got that soundtrack. That was my intro to punk was the Repo Man soundtrack. And I was strutting around about punk. And everyone's like, you know, you're like eight years late to this. I don't know if you know what you've missed, but you're doing, you know. So, and and same with like um, hip hop for me. It wasn't until college with stuff like De La Soul and the Beastie Boys that I really, really got into it. So um, I just, you know, I've, there's been a couple times I've been early on some things, but for the most part for me, I, I've, it's always just kind of looking back, which, you know, it's fine because I, someone, I think it was Clive James was like, don't worry about um, not discovering things early or what everyone else does. They're waiting for you and they're never upset that you're late. They're, they're ready to go. It's that okay. That could not be put better. Yeah, exactly. Well, of all the things that you do from writing to stand-up comedy to performing as an actor, you've written books. Um, what was the first pursuit? I know you started stand-up. You were a teenager when you were doing professional stand-up, right? Uh, yeah, I was 19. Uh, before that, I really, really wanted to be a writer. I really, really I wanted to be Stephen King. I wanted to be Harlan Ellison. I wanted to just crank out novels, the idea of churning out every day was very very appealing to me so um in the fantastical genre yeah horror and fantastical stuff a lot of post-apocalypse stuff that was my that was my um that was my jam was the post-apocalypse <laughs> i wrote this huge multi-chapter thing i think when i was a freshman in high school for a writing project that kind of took on a life of its own called Charlie Victor and the Wasteland Blues. And it was just people wandering around. Just, again, I didn't know how the world worked. I didn't know how to pay an electric, electricity bill. So, you know, I, I was like, well, let's destroy the world, and then I'll have people wandering around in it. You know, but and Stephen you King, was, yeah. I remember Stephen King's books. He was always, always very, very focused on the economics of living on no money and having to go, okay, I can pay this much. It wasn't until I was in my 20s when I had, I would literally go down to the phone company in San Francisco and say, my bill is this. I can pay you this much. Can you keep my phone on for one more month? Because I have these gigs and then I'll have enough money to pay the rest of it. Like I would go in and just um, haggle. Like you have to go in and haggle with people to go, how much can I send you so that you won't shut my stuff off? And there was a time when you could go talk to someone face to face that's kind of gone now, 
Um, but there was a lot of like negotiating and okay, how do I keep this? I can live without my phone for a month if I can fill up my car, but then I've got to make sure my car is filled up so I can go to these gigs and get the money to turn the phone back on to get more gigs to make money to fill up the car. Like it was just back and forth like that for years. Being a young, struggling stand-up comic is so much like being a young, struggling guy in a band, you know? Oh, it, Jesus. I can't imagine. Because with me, at least the money I made, it's mine and I do it. You guys are like, well, we just did this gig and now how do we divvy it up? Was there Were there ever arguments like, I did way more of the work here, getting the gig, hauling the stuff, like, or was it just an even split of pay? Oh, it was a true democracy because nobody was going to fight how to split up $50 between five. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very democratic failure. Um, but Wait a minute. Hang on. If you were, wait, if you're in a prog band, yeah. how does a prog band struggle though? Like what gigs do you get early on? Like, because you're still doing massive conceptual prog stuff. So what clubs would you go and do? Well, not and really. how would you build an audience that way? It was very difficult, but, you know, and we would do concerts. One thing we started to do was promote our own shows because we were very theatrical, despite not having the money for props and being spinal tap. Um, yeah, yeah. We would just play and we were the rare funny prog rock band uh, where we oh, had nice. fun with it. So it was like Peter Shickley doing uh, progressive rock instead of Bach. So, um, uh, yeah. but it, it, it's the same deal, except you've got to lug around equipment and, and split it five ways and have your roadies and all of that stuff. Whereas you, you don't even have to have a microphone. It's provided for you. Yeah, I know. I've always wondered like the early years of bands like Genesis, like was Peter Gabriel stuffing his bat or flower <laughs> costume into a van with Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford. And they were like, ow, don't, don't fuck with the struts on the wings. It's going to mess. Like, how did they, I just, I, I don't know how that, how that worked. Yeah. It's not easy to be grandiose in the local bar and grill. You know? God. So you would do like prog rock bands in like bars, like prog well, rock gigs in a bar or a restaurant or. Sometimes where? we had to not restaurants and you know, you, you don't really dance to prog rock. Um, it's, it's a show. Yeah. That's why that's why I equate it so much to what you were doing as stand-up. You were getting the attention of the crowd. You weren't background music unless you were right, in a really right. shitty gig. But um, you're putting on a show as a stand-up. And, and how, at what age did you start to make your living doing comedy? I didn't get, I wasn't able to just do comedy and pay the bills until I was about six years into it. That 1994, I started in 88, and I remember that 94 was the first year that I looked at my gig calendar and looked at the money that was coming in and was like, I looked at my year and I was like, I'm going to make $11,000 this year. <laughs> and if I take away my rent and gas, like I have like enough money to buy food, so I'm good. Like I, I couldn't wow. believe that I was able to just live and only do stand-up like up to that point i'd always had to have day jobs somewhere or side gigs but then the year that i cleared 11 grand yeah 1994 i was like holy shit all i gotta do is be a comedian double digit k 
Yeah. Double digit. That was yeah, double digits. I could not believe it. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you what was the point where you first felt like you have made that step? Was it writing on Mad TV or was it uh, was it still doing I got to say I I first felt like I made the step when I made 11 grand a year and only wow. had to do comedy. I'm like I am now living a creative life. It's not a I was never looking to live a profitable life or a wealthy <laughs> life. I just wanted to only have to do creative stuff. So to get to do that was such a big deal for me. What was the fact that, oh, all I like I've made it. Anything else beyond this is gravy. Like I wake up, I sleep until I wake up, I go to a coffee shop, open my notebook, I just write and come up with stuff, and then I go and do gigs and make money. I was so happy. So everything else after that was like I, I never judged anything after that. To me, anything after that is like, I'm, all I got to do is do comedy, so I'm fine. You know, I, I was never one of those. Well, I got here. Now what? Or now what? Now what? Like, I just that—that's no way to live a life. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you managed to expand that comedy and your writing into something that reached a lot more people than a club or a concert hall. Well, I mean, I think that was because not because I was. Not because my goal was I've got to reach more people. It was because I want to keep being enthusiastic and having fun with what I'm doing. And one of the ways to do that is to innovate and constantly make it new and challenge yourself. And I think the people that do that, which again, it's more often than not, it's to amuse themselves and keep themselves excited. Those people tend to draw the biggest crowd because enthusiasm, nothing, no amount of gimmicks or or, or fads or popularity can replace enthusiasm and enthusiasm can last you forever. If you always have enthusiasm for what you do, you'll work in what you want to do forever. But if you're only like, I'll have enthusiasm if I'm working at a certain level, like every year I've got to get bigger and bigger. Like, well, then you're not, you're only going to go so far and then you're going to come crashing down and you're going to be angry that, well, I, but I was, at this level last year, and now I should be at this level. In, in, in creativity, the years go like this, and you have to love every single second of it. You know? Yeah, it, I totally. Uh, What's really weird? One of the examples that I use, the actor Eric Roberts. Yeah. Like when he's doing the Dark Knight movie, he's there, and he's enthusiastic, and then he'll go shoot some indie movie out in Lompoc, and it, for everyone I've talked to, like, he shows up, he's happy, he's like, I'm doing a movie, this is great. Like, he doesn't judge anything in comparison to anything else. He's like, how do I make this the most fun I can make it while I'm doing it? And that enthusiasm is so infectious. And everyone that you work with is like, oh, that guy was so great. You should hire. Like, that's how you keep working forever. Well, how wonderful to be able to make your life in the arts. It's such yeah. a rare opportunity. And the people who go into it to become rich and famous for success or money seem to be the ones who don't fare the best or have the longest careers you know it's well they 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 can have a very nice window of success yeah um you know but they think that window should then last forever and it's like but that doesn't last forever for anybody you know you have different phases and you should try to find ways to enjoy them all you know it's the um the line from sunset boulevard it, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being was it nothing wrong with being um 50 there's the only thing wrong with being 50 is trying to pretend like you're 20 when right. you're 50 you know so 
just go with whatever. Be European. Just age, age, and keep changing and doing stuff. It's the best. Yeah, fifty has changed a lot since then. Oh, I know. It really has. Again, look at the guy. Look at look at George Miller, the Road Warrior director, and does Happy Feet and Babe Pig in the City. And then when he's like in his seventies, comes back and does Fury Road, and every young gun action director is like oh god i gotta change oh my god this guy <laughs> totally changed the game on us what the hell do i do so but because he's just enthusiastic about everything yeah you want to keep going you know stephen king every time out it's like it's something new and fresh and i always and, feel fear is a great motivator that you're not gonna do something new and special and great you yeah. know i always feel but, like i'm 25 and starting every time yeah, i do it but on top of the fear if you especially if you read his books now on top of the fear is that excitement of, oh, I'm going to try this. Let's see if it works. Yeah. Like he's excited to go how. And also, and you know this too, when you're writing, as much as you can outline and prepare, you never, ever get better ideas um, than when you're writing and it starts to get out of your hands. If you can just get started and sustain it after like an hour or so, shit will start happening that you did not plan, which yeah. means it was all lying there locked in your head and the the key is you just starting to move and make noise it's like the idea is here like is your stuff going on out there and then they whoa i'm in and they want to, it's like it wants to jump into the thing that you're writing but like get it going like start setting up the party and then all the ideas will be like oh shit whoa i want to hey what if i did this and you're like oh that's the you know yeah you're really cooking when your fingers are writing instead of your brain yeah. How many times have you been making a movie or writing a script where suddenly the idea that you didn't know you needed just jumps out? And you're like, fuck, that's my ending. Oh, shit. Wait, 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 wait. Every that's day. Best. Yes, it's the Every best. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and by the way, that when an artist, a writer, a singer, anyone, when they get surprised, that surprise always translates to the audience. That yeah. always, the viewer that's watching it is always like, Oh my God. Like they, that feeling of surprise will always transfer over to your, to your audience. Yeah. If I'm doing a bit and I've been working on it, suddenly something new comes to me. That moment of newness never fades in the retelling of the bit. And the audience always reacts to that. It's like so a, when you're, when you're doing a tour, you've got <laughs> the whole routine is worked out. But when I saw you in Seattle, there were times where it felt like there were flashes of improv going on. Yeah in the thick of it you know there's newer stuff i'm working on there's stuff that i think i have nailed and suddenly one night a new phrase will pop in and those moments will always connect the audience with you and musicians will tell you this artists will tell you this artists are like the the best moments in any kind of painting or sculpture or something is after you've started and you're just going and then suddenly you're like oh shit you know i i remember i'll never forget this I did one of the first weeks when remember when Conan O'Brien got the Tonight Show? He took over oh, yeah. the Tonight Show. Yeah. I did one of the first weeks and it was a big deal. He had just taken over the Tonight Show. Every show was a milestone. His first show, his second show, his first Friday as the host, his first second month. Like it, everything was just this milestone. It was all, every day was special. And I'm like, this must feel great. He goes, it does. But you know what I'm really looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seven months down the road. It's just a Thursday. We have a couple of okay guests. We got to figure <laughs> out a way to make the show good. And uh, everything we've ever done this show that's lasted was on some random day 
when there was nothing special going on and the inspiration hit us. And that's, I'm looking forward to us getting into this groove and then me just inventing stuff. Yeah. That's when your best stuff happens. Right. Where you're comfortable with yourself as an artist and you let it go. You unleash the subconscious and best. It's the best. Just keep making stuff. Everyone's like, God, Stephen King, you're a goddamn industry. Yeah, because he likes doing it. And he also knows if you show up every day to do it, amazing stuff will pop out at you. And that's what he keeps showing up for. And that's what all the best artists keep showing up for. I just wanted, you know, I went and saw Prince did a residency at the. at the forum in LA for like a month, right. every night, I'm just going to go up and play. Oh. And I saw a couple of the shows and the people, there were people there that went to every single show because something different happened every night. You never knew when it was going to happen and he didn't know it was going to happen. And you could see his surprise when it did. Wow. And that's just great to get to see. Well, when you were having great success doing stand-up, suddenly you were getting opportunities to do television and movies where it was not necessarily uh, of your own creation. And it's an entirely different job to be performing someone else's screenplay. Yeah, but I think with me, maybe my situation's a little different because I started off as a writer and I started off as a comedian. So I'm one of those people that I always, always sit and read the script and I want to give the script a chance. I assume that whoever wrote it wasn't just going, oh, I'll just crank this out and I'll make it better when they shoot it. I assume that that blood and sweat was put into the script as well because that's also an art form. And then I try to give it a fair hearing. And, if, and every now and then, if I think of something I can maybe add to it, I'll do it. But I'm not one of these people. And there was a bit of a fashion for this a few years ago when it was like, you know, is this the script? Goodbye. I'm going to, you know, it's like, yeah. no, how about some of the stuff in the script is going to make you look really, really good if you say it. You know, it doesn't need to all come from you. Well, you were doing so much comedy and you would be hired for, you know, doing uh, a, Paris, a down Periscope. Uh, and well, that was I wasn't even hired as a comedian. I was just a background guy that went, there's a call from you, sir, Admiral Graham. That was my only line. So that was <laughs> but- who can who can make this line sing? <laughs> but probably you got it because you were a comedian. And I think people knew me or something. Yeah. yeah something like um, that. But you would get comedic roles in, in television and movie show, uh, television shows and movies. Mm-hmm. But then along comes something like big fan, which is really much more of a performance that it's a very textured and modulated and layered performance that goes far beyond being the funny guy. Well, that was because I was very fortunate. I was hired on a, um, episode of a show called dollhouse mm-hmm. that it was a comedic role and then it suddenly becomes very very dramatic and you know i i auditioned for joss whedon and i, I remember reading the script and just thinking it was fantastic dollhouse is such an underrated show and such a timely show uh <laughs> based on what's going on now but all that aside he really took a chance on me doing something dramatic and uh that i think the, the people at uh, Big Fan. Also, I knew the director. He was a guy who uh, basically was the editor for The Onion for years. He edited yeah. pretty much almost single-handedly wrote Our Dumb Century and um, then wrote the movie The Wrestler. And oh, the, the money that he got from The Wrestler, then he was getting all these offers to do other movies. And he was like, 
the script that got me the wrestler, which was big fan, which at the time was called Paul Alfiero. It had made the rounds in Hollywood for like a decade. Mm. And then he, um, offered it to me. He goes, I'm taking all the money I made on the wrestler and I'm going to shoot this myself with no money. I'm going to do sag low budget. And I was like, this is everything I've always bitched about Hollywood that it should be like in the early seventies with like Coppola doing the ring people and Monty Hellman doing two lane blacktop. So I have to say yes to this. And so we were literally shooting like my dressing room was the back of the car that I drove in there that day. Catering was let's uh, we're going to subway. What sandwiches everyone want? Like it was so immediate and real. And it's a leading role. You're carrying the movie. You're the title character. Yeah, I know it was, um, Tell me yeah. how different that was from what you'd been doing. I had well, one of the things that was different was I had to kind of tamp down my irregular comedic instincts to be clever and quick and say something funny. The guy that I was playing had no real inner life, had no real way of communicating with people, so he never had anything clever to say. It was all just negativity, negativity, um, negation, shutting people down because he doesn't. He's actively rejecting life, and that's a very weirdly enough. To actively reject life, scene after scene, is a very exhausting thing to do. Oh, I you know, he, he's not reaching out to the world. He's constantly trying to keep the world at bay. And and symbolically, you know, the only way that that character communicates with the outside world in the movie is by using a telephone to call into radio shows. And he has one friend, played by Kevin Corrigan. And if you notice at the end of the movie, he's then talking to his friend Kevin on a phone when he's in jail. So his only actual human contact is now also through a phone and his, he has finally completely sealed himself off. Oh, wow. And, and what is it like during production on something like that? Do you do the actor's studio method and, and stay in character? Um, people often are playful on a set in between takes and it can dissipate the energy that with the other actors. I didn't really do any method stuff. I'm a little, I think a lot of times the method is as much as it's about, I'm trying to get rid of myself and become the character. But a lot of times the method is more about, I want to put even more attention on me, the actor, to show you the work that I'm doing. I just like show up and do the role, read the script and believe in it and mean it when you say it. But I did live on Staten Island the whole time that we shot it just to kind mm-hmm. of get the rhythm of that area, which was, I loved Staten Island. I thought that place was great. Um, nice. Really loved it. And I also, um, uh, there were a couple of, I remember one moment when the director Rob Siegel wanted me and Kevin Corrigan to riff about we're driving to the football game at the beginning and he wanted us to riff about sports about the football game and neither of us follow sports <laughs> so I said like one thing I, I I knew like the most basic thing about it's like oh you think so and so is going to get 500 or and then I just kind of stopped because I didn't have anything that was all I had and then Kevin there was like the most ass grinding silence and then Kevin goes I love football. That's all he had. That was his riff. So, so are you able to jump out of it in between takes and setups? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for the most part, I mean, I've worked with genuinely brilliant actors like, um, you know, Charlize Theron and Tony Collette and those guys talk about being able to fall a thousand percent into a character and then pop right back out of it and be themselves, it's stunning to see. And it really puts the lie to people that are like, well, I'm kind of playing a junkie in this, so I have to act like an asshole all the time. (laughs) Why don't you act and be able to go in? Because I just saw Tony Collette 
cold read an episode of Humanitates of Terra in her sweatpants, drinking a Frappuccino, and she fell into five different personalities at the drop of a hat. Maybe you could get to Tony Colette's level and not have to be, you know. Or as Sir Lawrence Olivier said, what about acting boy? Yes. Yeah. Well, someone said this. I, I forgot who said this. It's so goddamn brilliant. What basically, you ever notice when people are do the method and they're like, I gotta be this asshole, man. I'm sorry, but I'm playing an evil character. I gotta be evil all the time. But they only ever do that when they're playing asshole evil. They never go like, I'm playing this this open-hearted <laughs> priest that's really helpful. And I gotta say, no, it's only for when they wanna be fucked. It's like, you just wanna act like a douchebag on set. Like, yeah. no one does that for the, it's just, ugh. So well, yeah, I, I'm very suspicious of the method. I think the method is a little show-offy for me. Well, I just remember when we were making the Shining miniseries and Steven Weber in incredibly intense, demanding scenes, he was phenomenal. And then cut and he would just be ripping. You know, he was riffing everywhere. He was doing voices. And, you know, it, it's it's really amazing to be able to carry things. I am on, I, I guess I can reveal this because who cares? Because no one will ever read it. I'm on a, the nerdiest film nerd email thread. It's me. Dana Gould, Conan O'Brien, Leonard Malton, Stephen Weber, Drew Friedman, um, Larry Karaszewski, Scott Alexander, um, Cliff Nesterhoff, like all these deep Hollywood film nerds. Yes. And we just send stuff back and forth. And Stephen's on there and he's always the funniest dude ripping on whatever is going on. Because, But also he grew up in the life. So I think he probably saw a lot of the self-serious people that did all that um, uh, show offy bullshit that didn't help the work, and then saw other people. They were just like, "Oh my, doctor in this scene, okay." And then they just nailed it. It's like I'm going to be the easygoing person. That's the person that tends to have the longer career. Yeah. Well, uh, another thing I would like to talk about is young adult. You talked about Charlize, and it again was not the role that you would expect to go to a comedian. You know, it's it, yeah. There's a lot of layers there. It is. Well, I mean, I. I was I had become friends with Jason Reitman because we both owned French Bulldogs and we met at some French Bulldog meetup in a park. <laughs> and then we started talking about um movies because we're both big movie nerds. It's all you know, we just and then we just kind of became friends and I'd go to his house and watch movies and then he goes, I have this new script that and, and at the time I was working with Diablo Cody on United States Atara, so they brought me in as a placeholder to read with Charlize Theron. I I when I went in to do the early reads, I'm like, I'm just reading this till they find somebody. Like, they got Charlize, they're going to get somebody, you know, amazing. Um, and then we, Charlize and I, just clicked. It mm -hmm. just we we just clicked in the read. There was something about it. And then um, I think like all of us just without saying it, we're like, yeah, I think it's, it should be us too. And it just worked. Yeah. So in a way, I, I mean, no one else was considered. The two of you were the movie. Yeah, I mean, it really that not to brag because uh, I could think of eight or nine people to consider before me, but I just one of those lucky things where it just, you know, I mean, again, it, that could just goes back to enthusiasm. I like being in showbiz, whether I'm in a movie or not. I like watching movies. I like the art of movie. I know a lot of actors and actresses that are like, yeah, I'll I'll be in a movie. I don't I don't I'm not a movie fan. I don't care about this stuff. It's like, well, then why did you get into this business? It astonishes you know? me. It astonishes yeah. me that, to not have a passion for film and television. Yeah, don't you want to be? Then why did you? It's like it's like 
I, look, I, I know comedians who don't watch other comedians. Yeah. They're just like, I'm just focused on my own stuff. I'm like, isn't part of this, isn't part of the fun of this that you get to hang out with comedians? Isn't that like <laughs> part of the fun is that you hang out with funny people? Why do you not want to do that? Like, I, yeah, I, 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 love, that. I love comedians who they don't laugh at other comedians. They say, that's funny. Or um, they'll do the, the, I forgot who does this impression of a comedian laughing at other at a here's a comedian hearing a brilliant joke ready here's his reaction oh <laughs> just noting it down that's, in their head that's great and too true oh, yeah okay. when i did a tales from the crypt i decided which to, one did you do again it was called whirlpool and uh -huh. it was uh one of the few comedies and i brought oh. in I brought in Richard Lewis. I cast Richard Lewis and Rita Rudner in it and switched their their roles, uh, you know, turned a, a male role into a female role and vice versa. Brilliant. And it was so much fun. And it was their styles could not have been further apart. You know, Rita is very businesslike and handles things like this. And Richard Lewis is exactly the guy you see on stage. That is, yeah, their energy is because Rita is such a wordsmith. Like her yeah. jokes are so perfectly crafted. There is not a single bit of filler. It's all just maximum effect. And Richard Lewis will roam. <laughs> Richard Lewis is like a like a, a tractor that you just put a brick on the accelerator and just kind of <laughs> let it go and just see what it smashes into. Both entertaining in their own ways, but those two energies together must have been amazing. It was great. And directing two totally different kinds of actors, that's one of the best educations a filmmaker can have is being thrust into that room. You know? And wow. such a great experience. Well, what were the things, what were the movies and TV shows that excited you as a kid that made you think you could do that or that you wanted to do that? I remember, you know, watching the early monster movies, of course, every Saturday they'd show a monster movie. So you'd see, you know, the Wolfman or uh, Frankenstein, all the classic universal ones, because I loved all the makeup on people. So I loved, I really got into like Jack P. Pierce and, and Lon Chaney. And then in the 80s, there was that sudden rise of Rick Baker and Tom Savini and Rob Bottin uh, and, and all those new effects, Fangoria magazine, because I wasn't into it for the like, ooh, look at the gore, look at the good kills. I liked the fact that <clears throat> this was all pre-CGI, and it was like learning stage magician tricks. Like, how did they fool me into thinking that an arrow was coming up through Kevin Bacon's chest when it looks like he's just lying? Like, how did they pull this off? Yeah. So that kind of stuff, then you'd read about it in Fangoria, so it didn't seem like, I know there was a lot of like, um, and it's like a rough draft of the satanic panic of like kids are going to read this magazine and want to start killing people. I'm like, I didn't want to kill people. I just was like, oh, they worked out. That's like, it's almost like they solved a math equation. Like, oh, so he'll put his head there and they'll build a fake body around him. And then, oh, okay. That, right. so that kind of stuff always blew me away. And also just the fact that they were creating an industry from scratch. Like Rick Baker did not have. There were not set appliances and stuff. He had to like invent that stuff like a chemist. Like yeah. a lot of the stuff that he, when he was a teenager, his mom was helping him. He was yes. like, well, I know how long to cook this for. How, what, what do you need? You need like a gelatin? Okay, I know how to do Like he goes, a lot of the early makeup effects are because of my mom's kitchen, you know? And, exactly. And, and also you could, all these guys would write letters to Dick Smith and he would send them like, here's a tongue from the exorcist. Can you 
do anything with this plant. Here's a weird eye. Like, just like, go ahead, see what you can innovate with this. And that was just, that was amazing. There's an incredible generosity between the artists in the genre, not just yeah. makeup effects guys, but they're all supportive of one another, where so much of Hollywood is so competitive with each other and in the world of comedy, too. That's why I love there was a show on sci-fi and I wish they would put it back on called Face Off. Yes. Makeup competition show. And I would watch it with my daughter because it not only is it, well, A, um, it, it makes her now, if she sees something scary in a movie, she doesn't get scared. She's like, oh, somebody must have figured out how to make this look. You know what I mean? Like she gets more into the art of it rather right. than the – but then also on the show, yes, obviously they're trying to win. They need the money and they want the exposure. But if they if somebody finished early, they would go over and help someone else finish their thing. If someone else's mold came out wrong, they would figure – because they just want to keep working in the industry – and it's a small industry. They're all going to be working together someday. So why not be remembered as a cool person? Yeah. And, you know, as the guy who organized the Masters of Horror dinners that that gave birth to the series, it's all filmmakers within the horror genre. And they all are supportive of one another. Yes. Everybody's excited when one of the movies comes out. We all go in opening night and cheer it on. And so much of the industry is not that generous and and loving very very guarded i remember um reading a thing about uh vanity fair like one of those oral histories of horror romero hooper carpenter yeah. and um michael myers that character came out of an idea that carpenter had from watching texas chainsaw massacre of the idea of an extended family where there's some characters that are almost supernatural and how like they're it, and then he, I think he pitched it to Hooper, and Hooper was like, "No." And then he just took that one character, like Michael Myers was in there, and then wow. took him out to put him in Halloween. And then um, George Romero, I mean, Toby Hooper said later he remembers watching Halloween. He goes, "Oh, there's that guy. That's that guy from that script. He built a whole movie around him." Yeah, so just yeah. that kind of like being creative enough to see the uh, the origins and and how something develops and generates is just amazing to me. Well, nobody's a threat to each other. There's room. No, for, everybody wants to see great stuff. Everybody wants to cheer it on. You know? I know. I, I'm not in this so that I'm not. I'm not in this. I'm not in comedy so that I, I don't do comedy like I'm running for the office of comedian. Like there's only going to be one of me. <laughs> like I'm I'm in comedy because I a I want to be successful and then I want that success to make other comedy that I like because. When I'm not doing comedy, I like watching it. And the yeah. best filmmakers, when they're not making movies, they want to watch other movies. They want to champion that. And that's why you get filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Alex Cox and people like that that, yeah, they make movies, and they also try to get other movies seen. Yeah. Well, George uh, Lucas and Gary Kurtz, when they were making Star Wars, they said they hoped it would be successful because they wanted to see more Star Wars-type movies. Yes. And they were other like, oh, then we can – support Kurosawa with Kagamusha Shadow Warrior and other movies right. that we like. We can get those out there that we like. Right. Tarantino with Rolling Thunder. We yeah. release some movies that meant stuff to him. Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings us to the personal aspects of the art of being a comedian or being a filmmaker or a writer. Um, you've written a couple of books. Um, and one of them was you finished a book by your late wife, that yeah. uh, who was a crime writer and uh, uh tell me about that process you know it was kind of a tribute to her to be able to finish it yeah well i mean with me it wasn't that i finished the book i got the book finished those are you know when she passed away this book was 
like three fourths of the way done, and it's I was called like, "I'll be gone in the dark." I'll be yeah. gone in the dark. She was um, investigating the then cold case of the Golden State Killer, who she named. She named. She gave him that name, Golden State Killer, because he. Um, and even the homicide cops, like he was never given a cool name, and that kind of hurt the case. Like sometimes you got to give the killer a name that pops with people and makes them remember it and keeps the interest alive. So she came up with Golden State Killer in a magazine article about it, and then that magazine article got read um, by a uh, uh, you know person that said, "Okay, you know, let's turn this into a book." And so the book was. And so when, when she passed away, once I kind of got over my grieving as best I could, I called a um, uh, another crime writer, this guy, Billy Jensen, and also her researcher, Paul Haynes. And we were able, they, with my supervision, um, but really the, the, the work was theirs, was, was able to get that finished. And um, it really just, it, it meant a lot to be able to get that done. Well... I have never seen a, a work of art as personal and as painful as your stand-up comedy special, Annihilation. Um, that had to have been a real cornerstone of your life and, you know, a tribute not only to your late wife, but to your daughter, to yourself, your present wife. I mean, it all comes together in this incredibly powerful emotional way that I'd never seen before in a stand-up special. Oh man, thank you. Yeah, that was you know one of those. <clears throat> there were a couple of months. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to do stand up again. I don't know what to do, or you know, do I ever even do this again? And then that just came out of well, I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to go up on stage and just start talking and see what happens. You know. So this had not been written the first time you went out there, and or you just had some notes, or no? You I just started just talking and seeing what would happen. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a couple notes, but all of my comedy comes from me going on stage and working it out, rather than me um, writing it beforehand. Yeah. Well, tell me about that process and and how that came to be and the reaction that you got, because it is so unique in the field. I don't really know what the, I don't know if I can describe the process. I was still kind of in a haze. It just came down to what it always comes down to for me, which is go on stage over and over until I figure out what the what the set is, you know. And that's what I wish I had a more romantic way of saying, oh, did I do something special for that one? But it, it came no, down. No, that's to, even better. It came down to the same techniques: go on stage and keep hammering at it until you can make see if you can make something funny. And even up until the the moment uh, I was um, uh, right before I went on stage from the special, I still didn't know if it was going to work, you know? Mm -hmm. Even a couple of months ago with uh, your latest tour, you one of the hallmarks of your work is how you expose yourself to an audience. And a, a great comedian, a great writer, a great filmmaker, a great actor, that I think is the key to being special is how personal it can feel. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear about how you feel about different reactions, how things play in different areas and in different media. Um, <clears throat> if that's not too overarching. A question. I, I mean, I don't, I never think of it in terms of, oh, well, wait a second. How does, how is it going to play in front of this crowd or in this city? I'm always like, whatever crowd I'm in front of, that's my crowd. And I'm going to, treat them 
as if I'm just connected with them and we'll and they 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 invariably rise to whatever it is hmm. you're trying to do or connect with you if you are sincerely trying to connect to them and not talk down to them or anything like that. But yeah, that kind of thing. Well, let's talk about your your book, um, the uh, the oh the silver screen fiend. Oh yeah, because you talk about your passion for movies, and you've actually written a book about your passion for movies. Tell me a little bit about that. <clears throat> well, that I mean that came out of me when I first moved to LA in 1995. I discovered the New Beverly Cinema, which is this ah. legendary um, rep house. It used to be a porno theater. Makes a uh, cameo in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, as itself back when it was a porno film theater. And of course, um, it's owned by Quentin. Yeah, and now it's owned by Quentin. It used to be owned by um, this guy Sherman Torgan, and when he passed away, um, they uh, uh, Tarantino said, "As long as I draw breath, um, uh, the New Beverly will be open." So, um, yeah, we so it, it was a place that you just went and um um <clears throat> you just it was a double feature every night back when i started going in 95 it was five bucks for two movies yeah. and i just loved the um uh i just loved the kind of absorbing film because I've always loved movies, but get, to get to see them projected every night, it felt like there was this personal screening room somewhere in the city, and you could get together with strangers and just watch whatever, and, and it was all up to this guy Sherman Torgan's whims, who was such a film fan. So to get to just experience that was amazing. So what about writing uh, movies and television? You've done a lot of that. Um, yeah. More in television than in features. Um Tell me the difference between being a performer and being uh, a writer for other people to perform. Um, it's it's a different thing because when I'm writing for myself, I'm like I'm writing for my voice. But when you're writing for characters, you have to get outside of yourself and go, well, how would this person talk? What would this person do? You know, I think Alan Moore said it's you know writers have the most risk of mental illness because there's a disillusion of self that you have to aggressively do over and over again in order to have success. And there's a risk in that. So um, we, uh, you know, there's, there's days you can do it and days that you can't, you know? Mm -hmm. um, do you have interest in directing? Oh yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to direct. I mean, I'm just going to, and I'm going to start by just, well, once the, once we're all out of quarantine, I'm just <laughs> going to start shooting stuff. If a friend wants a music video done of like every, all this, like, well, I'll wait till I have some amazing movie ready. Just start working. I'm just going to start saying yes to whatever. I just, I'll shoot whatever and just yeah. get, I, I, I want to get to that Michael Curtiz level where I'm just a, just a stone cold pro, no flash, no crazy personality. I just want to be a pro and shoot stuff. And work in every genre. Yeah. Every genre. Well, I just want to, the only genre that I truly like is stuff that interests me. And, and as far as I'm concerned, that's Westerns, comedies, science, like it's just whatever, the, if, if it's a good script, that's what I like, you know? Tell me some of the things that interest you now. What are the movies that, and television that have really excited you in recent times? 
Well, you know, TV is actually what's exciting me more than movies. I think the stuff that's getting done on television, um, Ben Stiller's Escape at Dannemora is one of the best things I've seen. It's a masterpiece, and he could not have told that as a feature film. It he's worked, a great director. Yes, but yes, he's a great director, but he took an even crazier evolutionary leap with that show. And you almost feel the light coming on as he's doing it like, no, I want to do TV shows. I want to work in TV mm-hmm. because th- there's just stuff in that it, that is so beyond. Um, I, I can't even describe how brilliant that, that was. It just blew me away. And then also shows like The Expanse. Uh, there's something on uh, two shows on Netflix, one called um, Berlin Babylon, and the other oh, one is I'm called. I'm just getting into that, and it's amazing. Tom Tw- Again, Tom Twyker, a brilliant film director. Yeah, run, um, little, little, run. Yeah. run, little, run, Princess and the Warrior. But TV is liberating all of these filmmakers to do the kind of deeper character stuff that they used to get to do in the early 70s. And to get to see them have this medium now is just feels so good. Yeah. All, of, all of Brian Fuller's TV shows, I think yes. that's genius. Um, uh, oh, God. Have you seen Freud? Not yet. Uh, that's Netflix. also on Netflix, right? Oh, amazing. It's Austrian, and we had the director of all eight episodes on. Uh, and that is mixed pick to click here for you. So, wow, okay. Yeah. Also, um, all of Noah Hawley's work. Oh, yeah. Uh, Argo. Yeah. I mean, again, my favorite directors are all TV people now. Those are the mm-hmm. people that I get excited about. You know, I mean, there's still, obviously, there's still film directors, Bong Joon-ho and, and Taika Waititi. Yeah. Taika Waititi also... Always loved him as a director, but my God, with Jojo Rabbit, you could feel the jump forward happening. It was you know? an evolution. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And have you been Jesus. watching What We Do in the Shadows? Yes. I went back <laughs> and watched the documentary on Canopy. It's for free on Canopy. You can watch it on Canopy. And then I just watched it. I mean, just the best. Oh, amazing, amazing stuff. Well, Tell me about, there's one other part of your career that's a huge part of your career, is voicing animation. Well, that's just something I was very fortunate to fall into. I, you know, I would do voices, not impressions, but just different characters when I was illustrating things in my act. And I guess someone heard it and said, okay, bring them in. And then just kind of, I've been working ever since. Right. Well, uh, are there particularly memorable ones? I mean, Ratatouille was a phenomenal Obviously Ratatouille, which was, that was Brad Bird heard my first album on the radio one night he was driving around they couldn't find the voice for that character and he was like that's the guy wow. so uh and then um uh i loved doing um um happy happy was yeah happy was great happy was so unlike every other voice acting experience because i would do it on skype with chris maloney so we would actually act opposite each other i wasn't just acting into a void i was actually like reacting to things and it would change my performance and that's a rare thing to get to do um as a uh as a stand-up right. um, or a voice actor you know right but yeah all that stuff is, i got my great. sag card doing a couple of cartoon voices for the pink panther and, what? Uh, yeah. what like back in the 80s or when uh, this was when matt frewer was doing the voice of the pink panther no kidding yeah. He and I and our makeup artist, Billy Corso, all did voices together on set of The Stand when we were working. And yep. so when Matt got the gig, he said, 
come on down and watch. And then the producers, I didn't know he'd talk to the producers about me. And they put me in a booth and had me audition, like make up a couple of dozen voices. And that next day I got called to be a singing Mexican frog and a uh, Mexican horse. <laughs> Matt Frewer, that's another guy that just is going to work forever. And it's so amazing. Yeah. Did you see the Nick? Yes. Steven Soderbergh. So oh. great. That was cynical. was just amazing on that. Yeah. Really, oh my really great God. Stuff. Yeah. He's great. So, and comics. You're, you're really a media guy. You're really into <laughs> comics as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm writing a few comics. I just did a one shot for Dark Horse. Um, there's a comic that a guy named Jeff Lemire does called Black Hammer that is probably one of the best comics I've read in the last 20 years. It's so brilliant. If you haven't read it, just go get the trades. It's so goddamn genius. And they asked different writers, like, would you like to do a um, like a one-shot story just focused on one character from Black Hammer? So I pitched them a story, and they they said yes. And I just turned that script in. They just sent me the rough layouts for the pages. And oh, oh, how great. So, good. So, how great. so I'm really getting into that because basically writing comics is has become – and again, a lot of filmmakers are doing comics because there's companies now, Dark Horse, um, Boom Studios, Image, they're all creator-owned. So if you think of a property, you basically are paid to do the script and storyboard for your film, and then you own it, and then you can sell it as a film, and you're like, we've laid it all out here. You know, So it's right. this amazing process. It's an amazing creative process. And do you play an instrument? No. <laughs> I play no. I play percussion, the uh, keyboard. Ah, okay. Type, percussion. One of the very few things you don't do is play music. But You're not playing music. Yeah. Well, Patton, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. And Mick, you know, thank you, man. It's a total pleasure. I'm such a huge fan. You are such a Renaissance man, and it goes over so many genres. And I know we don't focus um, uh, on horror as uh, as a big part of your career but the good thing about doing a podcast is i can do whatever the hell i want <laughs> yes. but also, we could have by the way you could have started this thing and said go look at his imdb if you want to know his career we're just going to talk about favorite horror movies and i could have done that you know i could have done that for like two hours yeah well we'll do that next time we'll do that next time. i just i just saw a, a horror movie that hasn't been released yet I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it yet. Oh, talk about it. Talk. Well, I can't. I, I, okay. But I want to talk to them yeah. first. See if I can talk. But I'll, I'll email you about it. But oh boy, oh boy, there's some good stuff out there now. It's and the horror genre, because people are realizing it's a way to talk about deeper subjects that normally audiences would drive be driven away from. Like, oh, you put it in a horror movie, so all of the best, <coughs> all these. Um, it follows uh, Midsommar, Hereditary, um, uh, Parasite, which you could argue yeah. almost isn't a horror movie. Train to Busan, it, it addresses all of these societal things, and then it, but it smuggles it into a horror movie. It's yeah. brilliant the stuff that's getting done. Well, politics. I mean, we're close to wrapping up, but politics and and religion have been a big part of your work as a stand-up as well. Yeah. And what addresses that metaphorically better than the horror film? Good God. I mean, the um, did you see uh, a movie called A Dark Song? I did. Australian film? Uh, so I think it's Scottish. It's a t oh, there, okay. There's, yeah. there's only two people in it. Ah, okay. It's a woman who hires a, a like a medium 
so she can contact her dead child. And they have to go through this ritual for like two weeks in a house in order for it to happen. And it's so, it's an amazing movie about grief. And for, again, purports to be just a two person cheap horror movie. And it ends up being this insane, it's the kind of meditation on life and death that that like a Tarkovsky would do. But they did it in a horror movie. It's called A Dark Song. It's so fucking good. I've Great. seen it twice. I could. It's two people. That's the whole cast, and you're never bored. You're never fidgety. Holy shit! It's amazing. Yeah. Well, mine like that is the invitation by Karen Kusama. I've seen oh, that three or four times. That's it's so contained and so, so brilliant. And 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 um, without giving anything away, maybe this isn't a horror movie at all. Maybe it's just a bunch of kooky LA rich assholes until yeah. that final scene and you're like oh no not only is this a horror movie this is a more horrible movie than i thought it was oh yeah remember yeah. that last shot i do what's, i don't want to if you haven't seen the invitation god damn it is that a great movie Okay, A Dark Song and The Invitation is our double feature pick to go out on. Oh, Mick, you're going to get to watch A Dark Song for the first time. I'm really jealous. You're going to love it. Excellent. All right. Pat, let's, next time we'll talk about favorite horror movies over the years. Let's, let's wait like a month or so. I'll just come on and we'll just talk about horror movies. All I'm, right, we'll do it. Every other, every other week we'll do the Ask Mick and Patton anything. <laughs> man? It's been great to have you on. Can't wait to see you again. Great and to be on. Thanks, thanks man. For- All right, take care. Bye-bye. If you have any comments or questions for the show, please contact us at Mick Garris PM on Twitter or Instagram, or at the Mick Garris and the Postmortem Podcast page on Facebook. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Also, if you're interested, my latest book, These Evil Things We Do, the Mick Garris Collection, is available in paperback and Kindle ebook at Amazon.com. And my first short story collection, A Life in the Cinema, read by Miguel Ferrer, Matt Frewer, Stephen Weber, Joe R. Lansdale, and myself, is available now on Audible.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.